Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 7.5, the fifth episode in our series on Olympic National Park. In this episode, Brian speaks with park ranger Jared Lowe about the Pacific coastline of Olympic National Park, what to see and do, and about a very special rescue effort. Before we get to the conversation, we would like to ask for your help to grow our audience by telling your friends, subscribing, and leaving a review. Also, we love creating each episode, but it takes significant time and effort. Please consider supporting our work through Patreon, which provides a way for listeners to support the show. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on Olympic National Park. Okay, I'm here with Jared Lowe, lead coastal interpreter for the National Park Service for Olympic National Park. Hi, Jared. Thanks for taking time out. You bet. So this is a pretty interesting aspect of Olympic National Park. The actual coastal part is not contiguous with, for lack of a better term, the main part of Olympic National Park. My brother and I did spend a bunch of time in this section of the park during our trip last fall. It was a, as I've said on other podcasts, an absolute highlight. So do you want to talk a little bit about what this part of the park is, how it came into existence, why it's not contiguous with the rest of the park, and just give a general description, and we can kind of dig in from there. So, yeah, the coastal stretch of Olympic National Park is just around 70 miles. And uh, as you said, yeah, it's a little bit unique in the fact that uh, at Olympic National Park, we have sort of the, the bulk of the park, the interior there, and then we have this, this separated coastal strip of wild coastline and wilderness. It stretches all the way from uh, Lake Ozette up north down to the Kalaloff area, and as you head south down towards Lake Quinault. And it makes up quite a unique set of rugged, rocky coastline. And then as you start heading south, it ends up being more of the large swaths of sandy beaches, which are great for recreating. Before we look at it in a vacuum, I think one of the things that makes it pretty special is the contrast between the rest of the park. So if you're in the, as you said, the bulk of the national park, there's obviously rainforest, which we've talked about. There's obviously there's mountains, there's snowpack, there's all sorts of things going on. And then you also have to contrast with now you have this rugged, dramatic coastline with haystacks, obviously a lot of wildlife, some camping opportunities. So just in terms of getting that whole picture of the Pacific Northwest, this is a very nice contrast to the rest of the park as well. Yeah, that's right. So we often refer to Olympic as uh, three parks in one because of the the glacier-capped mountains, the lowland valleys and and rainforest valleys, and then, uh, of course, the coast. And so, you know, some of the unique characteristics of the coast are really found in those sea stacks that a lot of people are coming up here to see. And you have these unique assemblages of sedimentary rock that was left over from 20 to 40 million years ago, geologic time. Um, and so you have these the headlands that were, you know, sticking out into the sea. And over time, they, they eroded. The softer rock sort of has eroded away and leaving the some of that harder rock out there still. And that's the sea stacks we're seeing, and then which creates a lot of, you know, great tide pooling and, and arches and places like Hole yeah. in the Wall near Rialto Beach that are great to explore. So let's describe what the what the coastline and the beach is like. We've already talked a little bit about the sea stacks. Daniel and I are, are on Long Island, so we have a pretty vivid view of what a beach looks like. And this is a, this is a bit different. So I, I'd, I'd love to 
if you could describe a little bit of what these beaches look like and, and how they come right up to the forest and some of their unique characteristics so someone can get a real sense of what they would be seeing. Yeah, you bet. So, you know, like I was saying, up north near like Shy Shy Beach and Ozette in that area, it's pretty rocky, uh, pretty rugged, and that's all wilderness. And so as you head south, it starts oh, really about Ruby Beach is the, uh, the last sort of sea stack and, and intertidal zone area. When you get south of Ruby Beach, it turns into the big sandy popular beaches for recreating. And, and so that's right. So you have this spruce forest. You have these rocky coastlines uh, jutted up against the forest. And so you have the coastal Sitka spruce trees that, you know, often to get to all the any of the beaches, typically until you get to Claylock, you're hiking down and then you finally get down to your beach. And it's always amazing. You pop out of those trees and you just kind of, it's like you just entered another dimension off in it. You know, that's how it feels to me when I'm hiking through the forest. It's quiet, and you pop out, you crawl over some beach logs, and then all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, rolling waves and sea stacks and, and all kinds of uh, intertidal zone formations. Yeah, so uh, what I like most about these beaches out here are as often to get to them, you hike through thick of spruce forest, and then you get down and you, you pop out on the beach. Sort of an, another... A unique characteristic is these the beach logs that are littered up and down the coastline. And what happens in the wintertime, we have these high rain events and these trees that are right on the riverbanks will get undercut from a, a high water event. And those trees fall in the river. They get washed down to the river mouth and deposited in the ocean. We'll, we'll drift around and get tossed around the waves. And uh, when we get these storm swells and big rain events and high tides, those beach logs are deposited. Uh, right on the beach. And so I think some old sailor lore is they referred to the beach logs as bones of the sea. That's often what I think of when I go out there and you see these beach logs littered on the beach. So you crawl over the logs and then it's kind of like entering this new dimension. You're, you pop out on the beach and it's just a whole different scene from hiking through a quiet forest. It's all of a sudden this windswept beach with crashing waves and, and an abundance of wildlife. And so it really makes the experience unique and memorable, I think, for a lot of people who are used to spending time on coastline that's often developed and surrounded by hotels and resorts, and it's just not something you're going to see on the Olympic coast. Um, there's a few lodges, of course. You have the, the, the beach log, the sea stacks, you have intertidal zone, and then the other, uh, I think, unique aspect of the Olympic coastline is our shared jurisdiction with the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary, which is managed by NOAA. And that's a partnership that um, has been in existence for quite some time. I can't remember when the sanctuary was established. That also is another aspect of the Olympic coastline that often uh, I think people uh, forget about, that you know we have uh, the Olympic National Park is the uh, jurisdiction goes out into you know, sort of that intertidal zone, and then from there on out, it, it becomes the Olympic National, um, sorry, the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary, um, which is out in the in the water there. So that extends about 20 to 40 miles offshore, and about 135 miles north and south is that sanctuary. Yeah, yeah. Just that uh, for those who don't know, NOAA, N O A A, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, which is uh, located in the Department of Commerce of all places, but that just to give you a sense of, of what that is. And I, I think it's pretty amazing that um, you have this interagency cooperation for Olympic National Park. 
with the Marine Sanctuary. And also just wanted to second what you described in terms of coming out of the forest and hitting the kind of the dramatic cinematic ocean is exactly what my brother and I experienced because we did the hike up in Ozette and we went down to Sand Point. And the same thing, we're in this quiet, quiet forest. And I guess the acoustic shadows of the forest hid kind of the oceans until we came right on top of it. And then we saw it. And uh, also we got lucky that the rain had uh, stopped and the sun had just come out as we were hitting the beach. So Jared, I can attest that you're exactly right. That's a, That was exactly our experience. The other impression I had was how biologically kinetic, if that's a phrase, the coast was. So we, you know, there was, when, of course, we, we hiked up from Sand Point to Cape Alava where we camped out. And yeah, there were, there were logs, there were the sea stacks that we had to navigate. There was also a lot of, I guess, and I want to ask you what these were, jellyfish and other type of fish that were washed up, that we had kelp, seaweed that we were walking on. You got the sense of this ocean was very much alive and very much kinetic. So can you talk a little bit about with marine species that we would one would see, yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe referring to were they the uh, the by the wind sailors? Were they the little blue kind of uh, transparent jellyfish with a little sail on top? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's by the wind sailors or Valella Valella, and they're pretty fascinating. It's uh, I guess a cousin of the jellyfish. They're similar. They're uh, they're referred to as colonial hydroids. Jellyfish certainly wash up moon jellies. Those uh, Valella Valella. It's not uncommon to see a large skate washed up on the shore. Where it looks similar to a stingray. Some folks think of skates as stingrays, but uh, often we see those uh, wash up on shore. There's, uh, you know, bald eagles are a pretty common sight. Uh, when you head out on the coast, uh, you see quite a few bald eagles. They like to nest right up in the tree line that overlooks the coast. As far as marine mammals go, we have all kinds of sea otters, harbor seals, Sea lions, gray whales are a recreational activity to view the gray whales migrating up north for the summer and down off the Baja coast of Mexico and make their way up to Alaska. And then in the the fall or so is when they start making their migration down south again when it gets quite cool up here. There's about 200 or so resident uh, gray whales that actually hang out off the Washington coast year-round. And that's unique as well. So gray whale viewing, watching from the shore, has a popular activity out here. And the sea otters, you really don't see them too often in the surf, but there's a population of sea otters. There's off the Kalaylock Beach, there's an island called a Destruction Island, which has an old lighthouse on it that's no longer cool name. Uh, in operation. But there's a sea otter population of about three or 400 that hang out right off dis- between Destruction Island and the at the Kalaylock uh, area of the coast. Some days you can see them out in uh, their raft, and a raft is what we refer to as a large group of otters. It's known as a raft of otters. And so occasionally, if you get some binoculars, you can catch those sea otters uh, right off the coast as well. Intertidal zone, tide pooling is one of the one of my favorite activities, and a must-do if you are out here in the summertime on the coast and you have an opportunity to go tide pooling, that's always a, an activity that is enjoyed by all. Important to know the tides. Uh, I always recommend to stop at the ranger station or I think phones have apps where you can access the tides pretty easily. But you want to know uh, when the tide is going to be low so you can go out and have tide pooling experience. And in our tide pools, there's a, a variety of sea stars. Uh, along with sea urchins, sea cucumbers, tube worms, 
a variety of tide pool life lives out there, and tide pooling is also one of the one of my favorite activities to do out on the coast. Some other organisms you might see aggregating anemones or green green seed anemones. A variety of tidal life, anyway, thrives in there, and so that that's also an activity that I recommend if people have time to do. And they have the tides; you can time it just right. You want to get a good negative tide. Anything below zero feet is a tide for tide pooling. So we'll have negative one, negative two foot tide. That makes for a really great tide pool experience. Near Claylock, some of the best beaches for that is Ruby Beach and uh, Beach 4. Those are great spots. Beach 3 is also mm-hmm. another uh, place to do that. Tide pooling, highly recommended. If, if folks have time, like to go out and play in the water and explore some of those intertidal zone organisms. A couple of things there. So tide pooling is sounds like it's a great activity for little kids. And that's something where you can go out there with a description of things that you could see and kind of like a treasure hunt. Try to see how many how many of the things that you can tick off the list. That sounds, Jared, like a great kids activity. I also would add, just because my brother and I saw it, we did see on the beach, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, we saw a bear scat. So you're, I, I guess one would, uh, we never saw a bear, but we saw the bear scat and it was pretty fresh. So like everything else, I'm, I'm sure they're around. And you know, you talk about tide pooling and these activities. I have a dumb question for you and I'll explain. It's going to be dumb to you, but I'll, I'll explain why I'm asking to it. So with this coast, should I bring my bathing suit and towel and sunscreen and jump in for a swim? Is that something that one would do? That's actually a great question because I think a lot of folks uh, come to the coast with that in mind. That that's <laughs> right. That uh, we're at the beach and let's let's get our beach tan on. And you know, um, we hover somewhere around the the high sixty degree mark in the summers. So um, you know, sixty seven, sixty eight, sixty nine is about where we're at on a good sunny day. Um, and the water the water is extremely cold. Um, it's it's uh, Pacific Ocean. I know um, people who are on the East Coast or Southern Southern, Cal- Southern West Coast are used to those warm waters, but up here uh, you don't often see people uh, swimming out in the uh, out in the ocean uh, as a sort of recreational activity. It's somewhere around 50 degrees um, average as the water the water temperature, and so it doesn't make for a great uh, great swimming weather. However. There's some days in August or September we might have some, you know, a hot, sunny day and, and being out in the water isn't too bad. But you don't see people swimming a whole lot in the ocean. The other, the other reason is really on the coast, uh, especially the Kalaylock area, we get this, this coastal fog layer. And so it's really important when you're on the coast to have uh, rain jackets and, and beanies or hats just in case that coastal fog lingering. And uh, there's some days in the summer where we don't see the sun for two or three days in a stretch, and it just will stay kind of overcast and, and really quite chilly. So the weather is it's quite variable, and we do get sunny days, but it's also important to be prepared for those days where you might get that coastal fog layer that never breaks, and you know it's around uh, 60 degrees yeah. in July. So. Yeah, it is, it is the Pacific Northwest after all. I, uh, I, I said it was a dumb question because years ago, not this trip, I knew better by this time, but... Years ago, Daniel and I took a trip up to the Pacific Northwest. We weren't far from Olympic. Matter of fact, on this trip, we visited Olympic for the first time. We were staying with friends uh, on the beach, and it was June. And I, I, uh, I came downstairs in the morning, bathing suit on, towel around my neck, ready to go in. And uh, the friends who we were staying with said, uh, "What are you doing?" And and 
I said, I'm, you know, it's the old, I, you know, I grew up on Long Island, uh, you know, on the water. I'm jumping in. He said, no, you don't, we sit and watch the water. You don't go in the water. It's 50 degrees. And so yeah. I, it, it led to, I have a greater appreciation of the Gulf Stream off the coast of uh, New York uh, more than ever. So uh-huh. I, I learned that lesson. So, uh, but in case anyone would make that same mistake, it's uh, in our trip, my brother and I in, in uh, September, we were not looking to jump in the water at all, but it was a hike up and as you also characterize, completely wild, right? So we can really lose ourselves in the moment. And uh, um, it was just a few people on the beach and no other sign of civilization. So that was, uh, it was very nice to have that, have that around us and kind of the teeming life too, which we noticed on our, our hike up. But I don't want to be too, I guess, Pollyannish about teeming with life because there are some endangered species that you all are being mindful of. Can, do you want to talk about a few of those endangered species and maybe um, how that's going, and maybe some if there's some success stories, Jared, that you can tell us about as well. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, when I, when the first endangered species that comes to mind is the um, the sea otter I, I mentioned earlier. That's list with the state of Washington. Um, but yes, the sea otter population. Boy, let's see. In the early 1920s, they were almost completely extirpated, which was you know they were hunted to um, a point where they were almost completely. Uh, gone off the Washington coast. Um, and then there was some uh, effort, a multi-agency effort um, later on in the 70s, I believe, uh, is when um, there were some sea otters brought down from uh, coastal waters from Alaska, and the sea otter population was reintroduced and uh, was extremely successful. And they uh, Let's see, I think it was the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972 uh, where it was established that the sea otters would be protected from, from hunting. And, and so, yeah, the, in Washington, they're listed as endangered under the uh, State Endangered Species Act. But uh, to this day, they're doing pretty well, well over, um, I want to say, the, uh, well over 1,000 you know, uh, sea otters uh, are, are off the Washington coast now. And so... Uh, that's a good. It's uh, been a success story, and and it sounds like they're. It seems like they're doing well today still. But yeah, it's uh, people. The you know, sea otters are really, really fascinating. Um, if you ever get a chance to to feel a pelt, you can see why they were so sought after and and hunted yeah. to, like I said, uh, almost extirpated from off the coast here in Washington because of the 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 thick, dense fur that that is water, you know, repellent and protective. So. Um, the sea otters are are definitely uh, fun to look at if you're able to see them off the coast. Yeah, I'm sorry. When I when I was a kid, I know bald eagles were in trouble and they were challenged. Seems like they're doing exceedingly well. How are they up in the Pacific Northwest? I, I see them uh, whenever I'm driving up and down Highway 101 and, and headed out to the coast. You see them quite frequently. For the next part, so we have a sense of what the beach looks like, the sea stacks kind of the rocky outcroppings, and I love the bones of the sea because they're the bleached logs. We have a sense of what kind of uh, fauna we would see. want to just kind of take a geographical tour of this coastal area of Olympic National Park. So going from south to north, so say you're coming out of the Lake Quinault area, as my brother and I were, you hit Queets, you start heading north on 101. Do you want to talk about what we would see as we head, you know, maybe from Queets up to when 101 takes a uh, a turn in a um, paralleling the whole river? Uh, yeah, you bet. So that's right. You pass the, the Queets Valley, which is another pretty remarkable temperate rainforest valley there. But as you pass the Queets, 
um, you'll enter you'll enter the park boundary. Uh, probably about let's see, you'll, you'll go past the you'll go through the Quinault Native American Reservation, and then you hit uh, the first at the right of the park boundary. You'll hit uh, South Beach Campground, which is closed in the winter but opens up in the summer, and that's the first campground in the Kalalock area. And it's also just past the, the park boundary. And that's more, that's a popular spot for RVs and motorhomes. It's a large it's a developed campground with pit toilets, but it's more set up for dry camping and RVs. But uh, so you'll hit the South Beach Campground. And then as you head north, you hit beat the Kalalock area. Uh, there's about six different beaches, and they're labeled Beach One, Beach Two, Beach Three, Beach Four. And so you'll hit Beach One and Two, and then you'll come up and you'll hit the Kalalock area, which is uh, where I'm stationed in our ranger station here. And then we have uh, the Kalalock Lodge, which is a beautiful yeah. lodge setting, looking out right over the ocean. And then it has the Kalalock Campground, which is about 175 uh, campsites. It's one of our, the largest campground in the park. So that place is bustling in the summer. It's a great place for families, beach access right there from the campground. It's the only car campground in the park that's located really right on the beach there. So it makes for a great destination for families with, with children and so as you head north um, there's beach three beach four past Kalalock. you're going to see destruction island out to your left or to the west and that's that island i referred to with the lighthouse out there and you keep heading up north you're going to hit ruby beach and ruby beach is where sort of that those sea stacks and that rocky coastline really begins and then again that's a great tide pooling destination. You head north, and the interesting part of the coastal strip is that you do have Indian reservations sort of dotted throughout the coastline. So the Ho Indian Reservation is going to be north of Ruby Beach. And then if you were to head up more, now that 101, like you said, start takes a turn, and you start heading east. And so you don't really have that scenic drive once you depart from the Claylock area. No. You go inland, and that takes you up to the town of Forks. Uh, but then, once again, from Forks, you can get on the 110 highway that'll take you west out to La Push, which is Quillute Indian Reservation. And right just south of La Push is where there's some popular beaches, again, for, for hiking and camping, too. It's wilderness camping. Second Beach and Third Beach are um, great great hikes. You hike down at the Wilderness Permit Camping Destination, Sea Stacks to Explore, Tide Zone. North of La Push, you have Rialto Beach which has Hole in the Wall, one of those popular intertidal zone tide pool destinations and a nice big arch to hike, to, like a, a keyhole arch that's only about a, one and a half miles north of Rialto Beach. That's doable with, with kids as well, and that's a great great, uh, great destination. And then north of there is all wilderness again. So we're talking protected, undeveloped coastline that's extremely popular for backpacking in the summertime. And so no uh no car no car routes or access once you hit north of Rialto Beach all the way up until the Ozette Indian Reservation, but that's all a popular backpacking route, taking that coastline north, um, up to Cape of Lava, um, which is uh sort of uh one of the points on the popular uh Ozette Triangle it's referred to. It's a uh, well, it's shaped like a triangle with three sides. It's about three miles a piece, and so it's a nice nine-mile loop hike yeah. um, right near Lake Ozette and then Cape of Lava. And then as you go north of there, uh, again, it's all protected coastline, and you eventually end up at Shai Shai Beach, which is sort of the northernmost beach uh, in Olympic National Park. And then north of that is the Macaw um, Indian Reservation. And so 
that's sort of a, a brief overview of the, the coastline. The first part, as I mentioned, is accessible with vehicle. The, the second part, north of uh, Rialto Beach, is all uh, backpacking destinations um, up into Shai Shai Beach, which is a pretty stunning area as well. So, A couple of questions with this. So on K-Lock, the campgrounds, are those reservation reservation only, or they first come, first serve, or a combination of the two? Yeah, you know, actually, uh, for the first time this year, the Kalalak Campground has traditionally been reservation only starting usually mid-June, June 19th, I think, this year is, is when it turns over to the reservation system only, and that's all done on recreation.gov. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a, a new system in place this year. There's going to be around 20 campsites available for, uh, for first-come, first-serve sort of walk-up um, access. And so we'll uh, kind of pilot that this year and see how that goes. But um, that'll be good news to a lot of folks who may have in the past visited and remember getting to Claylock. And it's, it, it's booked solid all summer, um, starting that mid-June until really end of uh, or mid-September. But uh, so, yeah, so about 20 sites will be available this year for uh, first come, first serve, which will be nice. Oh, that's, that's great news. That's interesting. So you touched on this a bit, but I was, very, I was, I was curious about for my trip. So 101 from Queets up to Ruby Beach, and then it goes inland. But the park continues, and really the you know, kind of road doesn't come back until you said, I think you said around La Push. So that's a good, I don't know, I'm eyeballing it, 20 miles or so um, north of Ruby Beach, south of La Push, maybe a little bit more. How does one access that part of the park? Just backpacking up the coast, or are there other smaller roads, um, or are there state parks? How, how do you access that part of the park? That seems pretty remote. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. So, yeah, so uh, once you head north uh really so north of ruby beach is the ho river and so geographically that's not a crossing that uh, you can do on foot it's quite a wide river mouth deep fast river and so um it's good to note people who want to backpack there's no real access from ruby beach north up into that wilderness stretch of coast so the quickest access um before you hit the ho rainforest there's a, a road called Oil City Road, and Oil City Road will take you all the way down um, to the mouth of the Ho River, and that's one point you can. That's a one one uh, one point where you can access that that wilderness coastal trail, and so that'd be one spot. Um, but yeah, only only by foot. Once you get to Oil City Trailhead, that's it. It's, uh, no more vehicles after that, and so it's um, again that sort of pristine, untouched coastline. Uh, that can be explored by foot only with backpacks. And so uh, that's one one launching point for coastal backpacking. And then, as I mentioned, yeah, La, uh, La Push would be another access point south of the Coyote River. And then from La Push, again, north, there's a river again. And so you can't, that river mouth is impassable. And you, you can only go from Oil City up to La Push by foot. You'd have to, um, if you wanted to go north of that Coyote River, you'd have to... Um, take more road down to Rialto Beach, where that's the point to launch for, I guess, the northern stretch of the northern coast there by foot again. And if I was backpacking on that stretch, could I camp overnight? And if so, do I get a backcountry permit at your ranger station down in uh, Kalalock? Um No, we don't, we don't issue uh, backcountry permits at Kalalock here. So those can be done at, at the main, uh, the Wilderness Information Center in Port Angeles. That's our main visitor center and, and wilderness information center. It can also be done uh, down at Lake Quinault. There's the interagency Forest Service Park Service 
uh, ranger station where you can get your permits there. Uh, one thing to note, uh, it's really important that you know your tides, um, have a tide chart. It's vital to uh, safety out there on the coast. You don't want to get trapped on a headland with a, a high tide. And so it's important to know, um, get, have a backpack. There's a map. We have uh, maps that designate areas that where there is no safe crossing uh, or the crossing can only be done um, at low tide. So you really have to be aware of the tides when you're backpacking out there. Um, and you can get that information at the Wilderness Information Centers. Uh, the other uh, piece of equipment that you'll need is a bear canister. We don't have a whole lot of bear issues on the coast, but it's more uh, for uh, raccoons. Raccoons and, and eagles or, or crows or ravens and uh, other wildlife that may get into food out there. So bear canister is important. There's not a lot of places often on the beach where to hang hang your your eyes in a tree, and so bear canisters are required uh, for that coastal stretch. But um, another uh, avenue to take if you don't have time to go through the or you miss the opening hours for the Lake Quinault or the Port Angeles Wilderness Information Center for your permit is they can be reserved online. And so you go to the uh, Olympic National Parks website and follow the there should be you know prompts and and links there to to reserve a permit online. Uh, that's a great tip. So just two more questions for you. One is um. You mentioned tide pooling, and, and I couldn't agree more, and I think it's a great activity for kids. So you said Ruby Beach would be a great spot. What other beaches would be great for uh, tide pooling? Third Beach and Second Beach are good areas down by La Pouche. That Those are all require you know short hikes, about a mile or a mile and a half through, that, through the forest down to those beaches. So depending on how, how young your, your little ones are. Um, and then the Claylock area... And then it's going to be your other, your best bet for tide pooling. And um, so Ruby, Beach 3, Beach 4. And that's, uh, yeah, I think so those three in the Kalalock area um, are a little, little bit more accessible, a little shorter hikes to get down to those tide pools at low tide. And then there's also a few um, hiking trails in the Kalalock area, too. If you don't have the, the tides, if you, there's not a good low tide for tide pooling, there's a nice little one-mile loop nature trail. Um, that can be access, accessed from the Kalalak campground, and that's a nice loop for, for little ones as well. Um, so there's a few hiking options in the Kalalak area that aren't necessarily, um, you know, on the beach. There's that, that forested hike. There's also, um, you know, a few of those hikes. I, there's the beaches I mentioned with tide pulling, um, Ruby, Beach 3, Beach 4. Those are nice just hikes down to the – about a quarter mile down to the coast through forested habitat again. And uh... – before my last question, I I really want to underscore your point about the tide charts. We uh my brother and I had them and they were and we had to time our hike around it. It is uh it's essential because that beach will obviously when the tide comes in that there's not a lot of beach there and it's in, you could be really stuck or in some sort of peril. So uh, the tide charts are super important. I just want to kind of double down on that. Uh, but my last question for you is especially you know you're. The lead coastal interpreter, again, Jared Lowe, lead coastal, uh, coastal interpreter for Olympic National Park. Can you give me, do, do you have a story of um, a real special moment when it kind of hits you about uh, the area you're responsible for and kind of, as we keep going back, the cinematic nature um, of this area of Olympic National Park? Do, do you have a particular instance in mind where, where you were on a hike or on the job and it just hit you like, this is a pretty special area that I'm, I'm responsible for? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, 
all daily, I think I'm reminded of, of that when I'm out in the field um, and I, I have a great interaction with visitors or I'm just out there alone and, and I'm able to observe, you know, some sort of uh, wildlife or, or weather or sunset. Um, those are all moments that I, I cherish and um, that inspire me to keep keep doing the work I'm doing and and, uh, and make it enjoyable. Um, but I, I can draw on ex- an experience last year. I mentioned the gray whales um, out here on the coastline. And last summer was a pretty unique uh, summer. We had uh, an abundance of gray whales feeding right right in the surf. And so um, I have an, uh, a colleague who's worked here for over 20 years, and, and she's never once seen gray whales like that right in the surf feeding. And so uh, the way they feed is they're baleen feeders, and they filter feeders, and they you know, we'll scoop it, scoop over that set, kind of turn sideways and scoop up sediment and, and sand and kind of filter it out through their baleen. And so um, we had almost daily, uh, starting in late June through late August, you could see these gray whales out there feeding right in the surf. Wow. A pretty rare event to witness. And later on in the summer, we had a report of a, a juvenile beached whale that was still still alive and it was just north of uh, the Koilock Lodge area and so there were several personnel that had been out um, monitoring this beached whale. Um, there was a multi-agency effort put forth and a decision was made to try and attempt to rescue this great whale that was stranded on the beach and so there was cadre of experienced professional volunteers with uh, the Park Service, uh, with NOAA, the Washington State Fish and Wildlife and Marine Mammal Stranding Network, comprised of of a few nonprofits, uh, Cascadia Research being one of them. And so, anyway, uh, uh, we all got together, and and there was a um, pretty emotional attempt, a successful attempt to rig up a harness system uh, at low tide on it was the third or fourth night of that gray whale being stranded out there. Um, where we had several people on ropes with a pulley system and some professionals with the Sea Mammal stranded, Stranding Network who rigged up a, a harness around this gray whale. And right at night, it got dark. It was at low tide. And we had a pulley system tethered to some out, uh, anchor out in the sand. And, and then we had a pulley around a law, beach log. And so we had a three-to-one for the pulley system. And we were able to, to with the teamwork, with about 12 people on a rope and several people observing and and uh, looking out for safety, we were able to pull that whale and sort of turn it to face the ocean uh, just at high tide. And so when the tide came up, it was a pretty amazing event. And kind of at the last minute, we were able to, to get that whale turned and it disappeared into the night. And um, that was a moment that I definitely will, will never forget. And the teamwork and camaraderie uh, involved with that was was a, a special moment, and so that's something I'm sure in my career I'll never experience again, and I'll always look back on that as a, a fond uh, fond moment. That's amazing. Uh, what a happy ending, and then uh, a happy ending for that whale, and a happy ending for our uh, our time together, Jared. I'm, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you shared that story with us. Where uh, both Daniel and I are, are uh, we're, our hearts are warm thinking about that. So I'm glad there was a happy ending. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Again, Jared Lowe, lead coastal interpreter, Olympic National Park. 
National Park Service. He's based out of Kalaylock Ranger Station, uh, right by the lodge. So check him out when you're down there. And thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed our talk. This was great. Me too. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, consider clicking on Support Our Show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review, give us a five-star rating, and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.
All right, so uh, thanks, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn you over to uh, Danielle, I, and she'll wrap up. I've got to jump on a conference call, but uh, thanks so much. That was uh, that was great. And again, my my brother and I. I this was the uh, this was kind of what we tacked on to the trip, and he he actually suggested it. He he lives up there um, because I just dumbly thought, well, I'm going to Olympic. I want to see kind of the. And there's so much of it. I, I'm not gonna I'm gonna skip this kind of appendage. Um, but this ended up being a highlight and, uh, our backpacking trip, uh, on that Ozette loop, uh, was amazing. And, uh, that was, uh, again, highlight of the trip. So I'm, I, I've been looking forward to talking to you about this. So thanks very much again. Oh, great. Thanks for talking, Brian. All right. Here's Danielle. Thank you. Sorry. I have to cough. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, thank you so much. I was wondering if you have photos I, I made a list of a, a few things that you said, but in particular, do you have photos of the whale and the rescue effort or I, video? I do. I do. I can send you some links as well. Um, yes. There's quite a few articles out there, um, Seattle Times and eventually David News, and um, it's it's uh, it's been captured by quite a few media outlets. But yeah, I do okay. have some photos um, I can certainly try to dig up and, and share with you. Yeah, and would I be able to give credit wherever credit is due, but like post it on Instagram when I um, publish this episode? Yeah, I can. Um, the photos I'll send you will have the uh, it will have the the, uh, the, the photo, photo credits credit. already in in the you know photo there. Okay. We have some public domain, and so they're already um, credited there. And but yeah, I, I can certainly try to find some. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. And um, I, since Brian and his brother were there and not me, who's usually the one with the the camera, um, pic- pictures of the sea stacks and arches, hole in the wall, um, maybe they're public domain on your website, but if you have anything to send me, that would also be helpful. Yeah, you know, the park has a, a Flickr account. Oh, okay. And if you go to our Flickr account, all those images are for public use. Oh, excellent. And so, it has, yeah, it has a great collection of, of photos that you can pull from. Um, okay. Just, yeah, if you just – Olympic National Park Flickr, uh, and then okay. they're able to – you can just copy and paste right off of the website there. Oh, awesome. Does, do all um, national parks have that or just no, you, you know, I think You're the first uh, I don't think person all parks to tell have me that. that. No. This was something that was started just a few years ago. Um, yeah, and so it's a great, great resource. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> I'm sure my photos don't compare anyway. So cool. Yeah, yeah there's some I'll great ones in there. Okay, super. Well, thank you very, very much for your time. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'll contact you when this goes live. It's, uh, it probably won't be until like the middle of the summer, I think. Um, we are right now rolling out the Smokies, and I think that brings us to middle of June or so. Um, so I got to look what the weeks are. We roll it out every two weeks. We um, publish a new episode. So uh, okay, great. Well, thank you very much. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for uh, for the opportunity to speak with you all, and um, I like I, I love what you're doing. It's great. So. Oh, thank you. Did you check out our website? I did, yeah. Or other yeah, episodes. Awesome. Great, thank you. Yeah, appreciate, we appreciate the support. 
Yeah. And actually another question, maybe I should, um, circle back to, uh, who's the public relations person, Rachel? Oh, there's a Penny Wagner. Oh, Penny. Yes. Rachel's from a different park. I think that was the Smokies. Um, Penny. Yes. I spoke with her. Rachel was the whole rainforest interpreter. I believe you spoke with. Exactly. Thank you. I knew there was a Rachel. (laughs) Um, what was I going to say? Oh, another park I had spoken to said they were interested in putting the episodes on their website, but only if they if I had a written transcript. Do you know what the situation would be for Olympic? Oh, it'd be the same. Yeah, and Penny Wagner could could yeah. uh, help you with that. But yeah, I think the transcript is for our um, accessibility five hundred eight exactly. compliance. Yes, but yeah, Penny could help you with that. Yeah. Okay. That's going to be have to, have to be a project for uh, towards the end of the summer because that's going to be yeah. a big hey, undertaking for me. <laughs> um, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Ben, it was great talking. All right, take care. Have a good day. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.